I think for a lot of people, your early 20s is a time to party. I just want to get go out and get wasted. So that's what I did every weekend with my group of friends. But for some, it's also the time to discover you might have a problem. I didn't know my limits when I was 20. You know, we have all those days and whatever, but I just didn't know my limits. This is Jill Bennett. For her, going out wasn't all fun. It could get kind of dark. I mean, I was getting angry all the time when I was drinking, punching random people in parking lots, and just it got to a very crazy point that was not good for my health or my well-being, and that's not the person that I wanted to be. Jill lived like this for a while, going out every weekend, partying too hard, and drinking too much. Until one day, she went to a Pink concert and ran into an old friend. And I saw her for the first time in a long time, and she came up to me and was like, hey, patting me on the arm, you got some broad shoulders. You want to work security for me? The friend at the Pink concert was Jen McGuire, co-owner of My Sister's Room, MSR for short, a lesbian bar in Atlanta, Georgia. And the security job she offered Jill was, of course, at MSR. And I actually was like, yeah, that would be perfect. And so I came in just on a whim because I've never done any sort of security before in my life. I am a PE teacher by day, and I came in and I have not looked back since. So I've been here literally for 10 years, and this is my weekend gig. It might seem like a job at a bar wouldn't be the best move for someone with a drinking problem but it actually helped Jill turn things around. I still wanted to be in the scene, but I was getting too wild. And so that really, the job offer got me out of the scene because I'm still in the scene, I just can't drink on the job. I mean, I totally cut out, I am not a big drinker to this day. Like I'll have some and you'll see me out every once in a while, but like seriously on the weekends I play softball and I come to work. At MSR, Jill has the best of both worlds. She doesn't let herself drink on the clock, but she still gets to spend a lot of her time in the nightlife scene. Instead of going out and having party friends, I come here and work. And so the regulars are kind of my friends now, and the people that work with me are obviously my friends and family. So that's kind of changed. My whole friend group has changed. Um, going out all the time, obviously I'm not, unless it's here working. And at work, Jill has found an even richer community than she could have imagined back in her drinking days. It's like a family. Uh, we have, like, dinners and stuff that we go to, and we bond over those. And you should see us at the end of the night. We're all, especially during Pride, we'll all take a shot together and stuff like that. And... It's like a team, and it really is like a family here, especially with the managers and things like that. So Jen offering me this job kind of changed my life for the better when it came to going out and stepping up as a leader. And I really cut down on drinking, and it kind of made me a better person. This is Cruising a podcast about the last lesbian bars in the U.S. 
My name is Sarah Gabrielli, and I'm traveling to each one of them with my two friends and chosen family. This is stop number 18, my sister's room. Jen McGuire and her wife, Jamie, have been running MSR since 2011. But the bar has been around for even longer than that. We are the longest run lesbian bar in the South of 25 years. Jen moved to Atlanta back in 2001. From Tampa. So I moved up here uh, for work. And then, uh, yeah, of course, looking for a lesbian bar and found, stumbled upon my sister's room. And yeah, it's kind of from there, it was uh, home away from home. In the early 2000s, Jen was very involved in the Atlanta drag scene. When I did drag, I played drums live. Um, I was very crazy, just, you know, just having a good time. It was just for fun. Jill Bennett, the security guard, originally knows Jen from her early drag days. Oh, my gosh. She was awesome. She was Chase Daniels. Like, she was big time. Crazy, entertaining, a talker, um, outgoing. She was a crowd pleaser. She really got the crowd going. As you can see, she's on the mic all the time still, and the crowd loves it. Doing drag in Atlanta meant Jen was spending a lot of time at MSR. I ended up becoming uh, part of a troupe called the Court of Kings. And uh, yeah, it was uh, kind of on from there. And so I was always involved with my sister's room, whether I was doing shows on the weekends. And this is how Jen met Susan Musselwhite, the original owner of MSR. You know, it was her and her wife, uh, Patrice, and they really didn't know me just as a customer until I won this Drag King contest in 2005. And then after that, they they were just like, you know, people are gravitated to you. You know, you seem to have a lot of fun when you're performing. Back in the early 90s, Susan was a bartender at a spot called Dupree's. She basically had a following and the owner and her decided to open up another bar next to Dupree's. And that's how Susan ended up with her own bar. She named it My Sister's Room. What I've heard is that she always wanted a sister. And so, you know, she would say, I I just want to go to my sister's room, but she didn't have a sister. That was kind of the jokingly the story of my sister's room. Yeah. So whether that's true or not, that's been what we've been told. MSR quickly outgrew its space next to Dupree's in Midtown Atlanta. So they moved to a spot in Decatur. For those unfamiliar with the Atlanta area, Decatur is about 20 minutes east of Midtown Atlanta by car. I used to perform there as a drag king on the weekends and host parties, and it was a really cool venue. Uh, It was actually like a a horse barn, like where people danced inside, and then it was mainly outdoors and had a big outdoor stage. Jen was a show-stopping drag king, but her true calling, she soon discovered, was emceeing or hosting shows like that. Basically, it was a show that we were doing at the Jungle one night, uh, 2007, probably about that same time. The Jungle was a popular gay club in Atlanta, which just recently closed in 2021. But back in 2007, the Jungle, along with MSR, was home to many shows for the Quarter Kings, Jen's drag troupe. And 
Um, Liz Ellis was the founder of the Court of Kings and she got laryngitis, got sick and couldn't MC the show. So she's like, you're going to have to do it. And I was like, absolutely not. Like, I'm scared. I don't want to do it. Until this point, Jen had been kind of microphone shy in drag. She would dance and play drums, but do her best to avoid talking to the crowd. And I ended up doing it. And then all of a sudden, it was like I was hooked. And that's all I wanted to do was MC the shows. And I was still dressed in drag, but um, I did not want to perform anymore. Jen doesn't really do drag anymore, but she still MCs at MSR and at other events as well, sometimes for thousands of people. We got DJ Ryko from all the his Q100. It's Friday night MSR. We're going live right now. And then, of course, for MSR, you know, I'll be hosting the shows with some other MCs and we'll have like three stages. Uh, There's nothing like talking to a crowd or challenging yourself if you don't feel the crowd's getting into it, having to read people. So I find it a a big adrenaline rush. I I love it. I love messing with people. I have like little sayings that I'll say and, you know, the people just get really pumped up and they like it. Yeah. Like if I say in the audience, can I get an attitude check? Everyone screams back at me. you. It was at a gig in 2008 that Jen first met her wife and co-owner, Jamie. I was emceeing on stage and she was watching me and I jumped off the stage and said, get out of my head. It was so cheesy, but that's that's what happened. We met at my sister's room and then it was from there on, yeah. And then we got married last year. So we've been together 13 years and married one year. Today, Jen and Jamie own MSR together, but they started organizing events for MSR long before they bought the bar. Their skills complement each other nicely. Her and I, together, we collaborated as a team to really just start throwing these crazy parties at MSR. And she's like the marketing, the flyer. She's like behind the scenes. Um, more of the introvert where I'm the extrovert, but she comes up with the party ideas with me, and we just try to create some really cool parties. Jen had continued to do drag as well until around 2007. I was performing a song by Limp Biscuit. Kind of funny. And I went to jump off the stage and my leg just went. I tore my ACL meniscus. So, and then I kind of walked on it for a few years, just like, ah, it'll heal itself. And then, um, yeah, basically in 2011, I had to have surgery and I was in a wheelchair for three months. I had to learn how to walk all over again because I had an allergic reaction to the cadaver in my leg. Jen had been in finance for 18 years, but due to her knee injury, she was forced to take two months off of work. It was a big wake-up call for her. I left corporate America. I got tired of being in a male, white-dominated field where women weren't respected. And uh, yeah, that was my reason for leaving. Personally, and and I could have went to any banking or real estate investment firm, but, you know, the opportunity presented itself for Jamie and I. My wife was always like, you know, you make all this money for all these people. You should be, you know, the bar owner with me. And Susan, MSR's original owner, was ready to sell. She actually approached Jen and Jamie. And she was a friend of ours at the time. She said, hey, I'm ready to passed the torch and have someone by the bar. And we thought you two would be the perfect candidates after we had been together for a couple of years. 
When Jen and Jamie bought the bar in 2011, it was located in East Atlanta. But there was one problem with that. Atlanta's gayborhood is in Midtown. You know, we just wanted to get back to the gay mecca. So, you know, Midtown is where all the gays are and lesbians. And uh, we moved. So we've moved. The bar's been moved five times. <laughs> we've moved it twice. We're going for Guinness Book of Records. Um, but this location we're in now, it's um, it's amazing. It's definitely our favorite spot. It's over a hundred year old building. It's 5,200 square foot. And it's just more classier. And I, I think it drew in a different crowd. It was kind of an upgrade to all of the MSRs before. This is Jill again. She agrees with Jen. It's a good spot. I like this spot the most. Less than a month after we visited MSR, Jen and Jamie announced the bar would be moving locations once again. Their landlord gave them one year to vacate before the building will be torn down to make way for a condo development. But the MSR that we visited, and that Jen and Jill talk so fondly about, is a large two-story building. You enter from the sidewalk into the top level, where there's a pool table, a bar, and a small dance floor. But that's just the beginning. A set of stairs, splashed with glowing neon paint, takes you down to the bottom level. There's a DJ booth and a dance floor, black lights, flashing rave lights, a stage, and paid dancers. Out the back door, there's a large wooden deck and patio, complete with green lawn, picnic tables, and string lights. During COVID, we created outdoor sections, doing outdoor hookah lounges. We put stages outside. Um, We do silent discos, which is really cool. And uh, yeah, so we kept that space. And, uh, you know, that was one of the things with COVID, you know, things like people want to be outside still. And some do want to be inside. So we try to accommodate. Sometimes we'll do a vaccine only, maybe down the basement party. Um, It's a juggling act, trying to juggle everything for sure. In October of 2020, Jen and Jamie actually got married on the patio of MSR. It was very small because we did it during COVID. It had just been such a shit year that we were like, you know, let's just get our kids and closest friends and uh, get everybody together. And we had a professional come in, decorate the bar. It was like a whole transformation with the red roses and the nice you know, flowers on the mantle and everything. I mean, it, it was it was cool. Yeah, kind of brightened up the end of the year after uh, being closed down for four months during COVID. The weekend we visited in October was actually Atlanta Pride. We start with uh, karaoke on the main level. Downstairs, uh, we have a drag show. It's called Switch. Basically, Pride comes with a packed week of events at MSR. And then Sunday is like the closing Pride party, and we'll do a drag brunch. And that is followed by another dance party with drag shows, all that good stuff. Go-go dancers, fire shows. Yeah, you name it. There's, there's a bunch going on. We were there on Sunday for the closing Pride party. That's where we met Jill. She was working security and, you know, working the crowd. Hold on. Hey! I'm trying to get interviewed. Can y'all shut the f*** up? Sorry. Then we're interviewing you next, and you're going to pump me up, right? Jill realized she was gay at a young age. I had a huge obsession of Angelina Jolie. This is actually something Jill has in common with two-thirds of the Cruising Podcast team. Gia. Yes! 
It was because of Gia. (laughs) Gia is a biopic about lesbian supermodel Gia Karanji, portrayed by none other than Angelina Jolie. I have an appointment. Oh, please. Of course you do. 11 o'clock, Gia Marie Karanji. Gee what? (sighs) Okay. G. I. A. There, Gia. People ask me all the time, like, who made you come out? And I always say Angelina Jolie because I saw that sex scene in Gia and I was, I, I knew right away. I was like, there are no questions. I absolutely know that I'm gay from this scene right here. <laughs> Back in high school, Rachel and I had a pretty similar experience with the movie. It was streaming on YouTube at the time, and once we watched it, our feelings for Angelina Jolie became a pretty open topic of discussion. I mean, I wrote essays about Angelina Jolie and Gia. And the more lesbians we meet, the more we realize this is a relatively common experience. And, like, I have crates of stuff in my garage of all Angelina Jolie stuff, like magazines that on the cover. I have uh, shot glasses of Tomb Raider and stuff like that. It's crazy. Yeah, then I watched, uh, after G, I watched Foxfire because of, uh, yeah, she dated her. So I was like, oh, I got to see it then. So in the 1996 movie Foxfire, Angelina stars alongside Jenny Shimizu, a model who she ended up dating. If I hear any more shit about 60 aspirins or one more of your mood swings, I'm going to tickle you to death. Do you understand me? Huh? Yes, (laughs) ma'am. So naturally, that was another must-watch. And I will say, even though Angelina wasn't as formative for our third producer, Jen, she had, on her own time, seen both Gia and Foxfire. And apparently, so had Jill. Oh, yeah. I had um, all the VHS tapes of all her movies, and then I switched them over to DVDs, of course. I'm just saying it's a trend. But despite this very obvious early sign, Jill didn't actually come out until college. All my life, I just had to hide it because I went to um, Providence Christian Academy in high school, and I was big time into camp counseling where I was signed a contract saying I wasn't gay and things like that. So I really wasn't out. Year after year, Jill returned to this summer camp and signed the contract. It was okay. I just kind of came to terms with it um, because I knew I was supposed to be there. I knew God had a calling on my life to be there. She didn't give the contract much regard and the camp didn't really have a means of enforcing it. I actually dated somebody from camp when I was there. (laughs) Still, it made Jill somewhat uncomfortable. And once she went off to college, Jill stopped returning to camp. No, I never said anything to him. Um, I quit the next year and just to pursue college and get a real job and everything like that. So I think to this day, they still make people sign it because it's through a church. Today, 20 or so years later, you can find Jill out and proud at MSR just about every weekend. Usually people, when they kind of come in here, I am like the face of MSR because I've been here for so long. Jill has even represented MSR on television. She can be spotted in an episode of the Netflix show Queer Eye. 
which featured MSR in Season 2, Episode 5, for anyone interested. I was actually the one at the front door. See that M? Thank you, sir. Enjoy your time. Oh, I love this car. How did MSR make it onto an episode of Queer Eye? Well, that's because of someone else we met that day. As we know, Skylar is a transgendered man who was raised as a female. He spent most of his life feeling one way on the inside and having the world see him as something else. When I came to college, I started doing drag and gave myself that safe space to explore my gender. And over a couple years' time, I figured out that I didn't want to be just a man seen on stage and drag, that I wanted to be seen as a man all the time, and I eventually had to commit. For the last eight years, Skylar has used most of his money and energy preparing for his top surgery. He finally got it six weeks ago. As of now, Skylar is actually the only trans person to ever star in an episode of Queer Eye. I actually filmed a lot of the show in this bar. Like Jen, Skylar originally discovered MSR through the drag community. Because I I did drag for several years um, before I started transitioning medically. Um, So that was a very interesting time in my life for sure, but a very exciting time because I was meeting so many trans people and queer people um, and in this bar specifically too, um, that really just helped me figure out a lot of my shit. There were a lot of drag competitions that were happening, um, in the Atlanta area and specifically at my sister's room. Um, and myself and some of my friends were drag performers. So we entered into some of the competitions and that's kind of how we got attached to this bar. When Queer Eye reached out to Skylar, he was already in the process of raising money for top surgery. I was raising money separately outside of that when they found me. Um, So they just followed that process um, to me getting my top surgery, actually having my top surgery, getting my gender marker changed, all that kind of stuff like that. And MSR was a natural backdrop because they'd already made their space available to Skylar for his fundraising efforts. Drag shows. baked sales, uh, art sales. They let me just use their space as an open forum for me to bring in anything that I could to sell or raise money or talent to entertain people that drag performers would come and perform for me and give me all of their tips that they would make. Um, The bar would donate a keg or make, you know, the door sales go to my benefit, Um, you know, stuff like that, that just really helped me along that process of raising all that money. So it's very much a community effort. Skylar himself has always been incredibly active in the Atlanta queer community. That's actually how Queer Eye got connected with him in the first place. To be on the show and be publicly outed like that, like, takes someone with courage to be able to do that on a platform such as Netflix. Um, So when they came to Atlanta looking for an out trans man, there were just several organizations that gave them my name. Um, and they reached out to me, the casting directors, and I was, it was right before I was about to have my top surgery. I was in this bar raising money. They were following me, filming me throughout that stuff. Um, so it was just a really pivotal time in my life that they happened to come across me and I let them follow me on my journey while I was undergoing that process. As usual, the guys gave Skylar and his home a full makeover. And it all culminated in a Friday night party at MSR, so Skylar could thank his friends for all of their support. So we're going to go to MSR, um, which is like my home base bar in Atlanta. These are the people that helped me change, change my life, you know, without 
all of them kind of rallying behind me over the last couple of months, I wouldn't have been able to get my top surgery. For me on Friday, I just want to be able to be visible and be present and let everybody know that I'm okay, I'm alive, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm thankful for all that they've done to me to like help me meet this huge financial goal that I wouldn't have been able to meet without them. So will this be the At the time, Skyler was also in the middle of a healthcare lawsuit he had filed against the University of Georgia. Um, well, I'm a University of Georgia employee, and because I'm a state employee, um, I was going through my process trying to use my health insurance to get my gender um, confirmation surgery covered, and they wouldn't do it because they had a specific exclusion um, for trans people to receive the health care, even though a uh, double mastectomy for a cisgender woman or a gynecomastia for a cisgender man was covered. They were specifically excluding the exact same procedure for me solely because I was a trans person. Um, so I went through the processes of trying to appeal that and it didn't work. Um, so I had to take up a lawsuit against the state and um, my lawyers were actually trans people themselves uh, that specialize in removing healthcare uh, policies like this throughout the nation. Being on a Netflix show, Skylar hoped, would bring more attention to this lawsuit. And so I knew that if I went on the show and leveraged all the media attention, it would help me win my case. And in October of 2019, the case closed in my favor. Skylar J. marches on the streets of Atlanta for transgender rights, each pride parade. And on the first day of LGBTQ History Month, he's making history of his own. The decision that will impact all Georgia universities and colleges and their nearly 50,000 employees across the state. Universities in Georgia will now cover transgender health care. The move comes after a four-year battle was going on involving a UGA employee who filed a federal lawsuit. Yeah, that's right. So he argued school discrimination against transgender staff. The employee's name is Skylar J., who was on the hit Netflix show Queer Eye. After a four-year fight with the university, he and transgender employees at all 28 Georgia universities are now covered by the university system's health insurance plan. And they removed the um, transgender health care exclusions for 160,000 state employees, the first um, southern state to do so and only the eighth state in the nation to do so. This was a big part of Skyler's decision to do the Queer Eye episode but he also wanted to set an example of positive media representation for other trans folks. The people that you see in the media until very recently, which is another reason why I chose to share my story, it was the dead body on the side of the road or the hooker or, you know, the mentally unstable serial killer. Or like those were the trans tropes that were put in the media and that are fed to people. So you don't really see yourself in that type of media. So it took me moving to UGA and meeting my first trans person in real life to be like, okay, this is a real thing for me. Um, this is a reality for me. This can be my life and I can be happy and healthy and successful because I never saw that anywhere else. And Skylar has heard from a lot of viewers that he really was able to touch people in that way. I'm going to open my Instagram really quick because there is a post um, that someone posted after my episode um and it went kind of viral and it was really touching i have to scroll back a little ways to find it um but it was a comment made by somebody's older father um here we go i found it 
We're watching the new season of Queer Eye, and my dad is actually crying over the episode with the trans dude. Like, he's talking about his top surgery, and my dad is in tears going, when you sculpt the marble, the sculpture is already inside. You're just getting rid of what isn't part of it. He's just getting rid of what isn't part of him. So, from my old-ass 70-year-old dad to all my trans people, y'all are marble sculptures, and you're perfect. And it just really... That message from somebody's 70 year old father to know that like I helped change someone's mind like that is really powerful what MSR did for Skylar opening up their space to him and helping to raise money that's not out of the norm for the bar by any means MSR actually often opens its doors on Sundays um, for day party shows to help different trans people in the community raise funds like they did for me We do that kind of fundraising all the time for uh, especially trans men getting surgery, trans women getting surgery. We will absolutely have fundraisers. The way they interact with community is kind of amazing. Like they're just very involved. This is Madison, a regular patron at MSR. If anything is happening in the community, even outside of the community with like marginalized groups, they're pretty quick to jump on board and like ask what they can do, figure out how they can help financially, what or like what events they can throw to raise money for it. They're just like, they're very active. They're very, they feel um, incredibly genuine. And I don't think you feel that with business owners, especially club owners that often. According to Madison, MSR showed a lot of support to the Black Lives Matter movement back during the summer of 2020. Um, They were super active with the BLM movement around George Floyd. I remember like talking to Jen and hearing them and looking at their social media and like, I mean, it's Atlanta. That was like very much the whole vibe here. Like it was, I think all of us, that was just like, it felt very close and it felt like we didn't have another choice but to be active in that. Running a diverse queer space in Atlanta is in many ways inseparable from social and political issues. Here's Jen. You know, you're talking Atlanta is part of the civil rights movement. And, you know, our community, I feel like for the most part, has each other's back. You know, we're very vocal about things, passionate. Um, And it's just really nice to be able to see people from all different types of backgrounds to be able to coexist and hang out with one another. Atlanta is often referred to as the birthplace of the civil rights movement in America. It was home to MLK Jr. and Congressman John Lewis. It has the largest network of historically black colleges and universities in the country. And today, the city of Atlanta is approximately 50% black. So after George Floyd's murder, the environment was exceptionally intense. And Madison was right at the heart of all of it. They walked past my house and I could hear them. And it was like that energy of just hearing protests all the time. And honestly, even the police helicopters that were around all the time were like energy, right? It was like a certain type of energy that was just like police presence, but also you could feel the energy of the city really pushing back. And like, I don't know. I mean, it it was a crazy, very sad, hard time, but it was also really kind of beautiful to feel that from the city, you know, just to feel the energy to be involved in it, to 
watch changes happen. Like it's just been, it was great. You know, I mean, great, but also terrible. <laughs> um, it was a weird time, but I think I would have not wanted to be anywhere but Atlanta during that, for sure. At the time, some mainstream media coverage cast the protests in a negative light. Well, they, they, they've already lit things on fire so far, Chris. They lit a police car right. on fire at there. about 8 o'clock well, that was just, uh, you know, still smoldering. They've lit signs on fire. Uh, you know, I mean, this, this is a crowd that came right. to confront police. They're angry. And we can't underscore, you know, on the cursory level, you see the violence that is happening and then unfolding right in front of our cameras. The past week was supposed to be a big week for businesses in Atlanta. Many had planned to reopen after being closed due to coronavirus. But those plans put on pause after many businesses in downtown Atlanta and in Buckhead, well, they were broken into after things took an ugly turn during the Friday protest. You know, Atlanta got a lot of really negative press for setting shit on fire the first night and like breaking windows and doing the most but i've never felt more like that made sense to me like burn it burn it to the ground like this is not this is what we have to do to make you hear us and it's never been more in our faces right now and we got time you know like we're at home we've got all the time to do whatever we need to do to make this change so it made me a better activist, too, like just to have the experience of it all. In a lot of ways, the protests brought the people of Atlanta together. I feel like people who aren't Black that live here are also like recognize that for the most part and like care about it. And so you got a lot of like white allyship in it. You got you saw you got to see that you got to see people figuring it out in their head, what you've been experiencing your whole life, right? <laughs> and like, um, recognize what's happening and start to, I think because they weren't working or because they were working from home and everybody had all this free time. According to Madison, Jen and Jamie's anti-racism was always present, even outside of the 2020 protests. They do not tolerate any kind of racism any, at all. Um, at all. Like I've seen people that like raised their own complaint about somebody else and then asked to talk to the owner. The owner came over and the first thing she said was, is it because he's black? Straight out. Like they're good allies. Yeah. And also those people got kicked out. <laughs> um, yeah. That night she kicked them out because it was, they could, they literally couldn't answer the question. They were like, uh, uh, and she was like, yeah, he's been here all night. He's been playing pool. He's been keeping to himself. He's a good guy. I talked to him earlier. So if y'all have a problem, y'all can leave. And then they still couldn't answer that. And she was like, you know what? Just leave. Like, this isn't, this isn't it. In general, MSR has a zero tolerance policy for bad behavior. Here's Jill. We don't even have to see it. If somebody complains that somebody is touching them in an inappropriate way, it's an automatic out. Um, Because I know that's a trigger in our community, especially the lesbian community. Um, But that's a no tolerance at the bar and even like homophobic comments and homophobic gestures towards somebody. They're automatically out. We just don't tolerate it. Racism, sexism, homophobia or predatory behavior will get you kicked out of MSR immediately. But like many of the other lesbian bars we visited... 
MSR's doors are open to everyone else, as long as they're respectful of the space. They want everybody that's going to appreciate what this bar has to offer to be here. And I think if you don't appreciate that, or if you're going to be harmful to anyone that could potentially be here, you're out. And this mentality leads to one thing for MSR patrons. It feels safe. Like, I always feel safe. That's why. Because I know that they wouldn't allow somebody that was going to mistreat me to be in here. It makes me feel very comfortable. I feel very safe here. I feel very taken care of here, very protected. This is Skylar again. He is living proof that you don't have to identify as a lesbian to find a home at MSR. As a trans person, this bar for me is, yes, a lesbian-owned and operated bar, but it is an inclusive bar for the community. There's so many trans and non-binary people that frequent this bar, that work at this bar, and the diversity of the people that attend here that just show up at the door. It's not just lesbians, there's gay men that come, there's trans people that come, there's non-binary people that come, drag kings, drag queens, drag things, like everything in between. Um, So it really is just a really inclusive space for the community and that makes me feel very safe. Cruising is reported and produced by Rachel Carb, Jen McGinnity, and me, Sarah Gabrielli. Our theme song is by Joey Freeman. If you like cruising, want to support us, and get access to more content, then join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cruisingpod. You can also follow us on social media at cruisingpod or visit our website cruisingpod.com. Special thanks this week to Jen, Jill, Skylar, and Madison. And thank you to Honda for sponsoring this week's episode. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts.